the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing Clark Hilton Engineering. Dan Rice, nowhere to be seen. Kind of the sad part of going back to the office. Anyway, today we're going to share a conversation I had with John Ferguson. He is the author of Blessed, Five Everyday Ways to Love Your Neighbor and Change the World. We're in a position now where we can reach out to our neighbors in ways we couldn't just weeks ago. Uh, So that's coming up in the five o'clock hour, the second hour of today's program right here on the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the bootleg fire has burned more than 212,000 acres in Klamath County as of Wednesday evening. The fire is 5% contained. Um, the Oregon State Fire Marshal's office said 21 homes, 54 other structures have burned, and 2,000 homes or structures are being threatened. We're just waiting it out and waiting to hear what's going on, uh, says one of the uh, evacuees uh, who is in the evacuation vo- zone. Some people have already been told that they have nothing left, and then there are others like me waiting to see if we still have property. Uh, Some people who have lost their homes are already struggling with their insurance companies because they haven't been able to get pictures to prove their home has burned down, which apparently is required. KGW first spoke to one family about a week ago uh, when they um, got to the evaluation center at the Klamath County Fairgrounds. We appreciate the cots, but sometimes it's not the best sleep you know. They're a little rough on you. Um, She's there with her fiancé, their five dogs and four cats, They're confined to their corner of the evacuation center. You can imagine this would be a less than comfortable situation. However, it is a blessing to have a place to go that has made provision for you. Um, uh, For her pets uh, that are used to roaming her 20-acre property, it's been really tough for them to be kind of cooped up in a small kennel most of the day. It's kind of depressing on them. Still, she said she's grateful for the help. It's not just the Red Cross, it's the Community Emergency Response Team, too. Project Spirit has done an amazing job getting the animals and livestock out of the fire, uh, she said, which is a blessing to their families. Uh, She said that they get three meals a day as well as snacks. Uh, She's also grateful for the opportunity to get to know her neighbors better. They're coming together uh, to help each other as much as they can. Then there's the help they're getting from the community. When I got my cats and dogs out, I wasn't able to um, get clothing for myself. Uh, It was food and necessities for the animals, she says. She says people have brought dog and cat food, treats, blankets, and clothing. Every little bit has been a huge blessing. Thank you is not enough, uh, not even enough to express the gratitude I have for all of that, she said. So that's the community at work in the area of the bootleg fire and in Klamath County. Uh, where those who have been evacuated and others will be evacuated are awaiting news of the status of their property. Well, California lawmakers uh, today approved the first state-funded guaranteed income plan in the U.S., $35 million for monthly cash payments to qualifying pregnant people and young adults who recently left foster care with no restrictions on how they spend it. 
The votes, 36 to 0 in the Senate, 64 to 0 in the Assembly, showed bipartisan support for an idea that's gaining momentum across the country. Now, dozens of local programs have sprung up in recent years, including some that have been private, uh, privately funded, making it easier for elected officials to sell the public on the idea. And keeping in mind that this is primarily for those who have been released from the foster program who do not have a family to connect with or to return to. California's plan is taxpayer funded and could spur other states to follow its lead. If you look at the stats for um, our foster youth, they are devastating. The Senate Republican leader Scott Wilk said we should be doing all we can to lift these young people up. The local governments and organizations are going to apply for the money and run their programs. The State Department of Social Services will decide who gets the funding and California lawmakers left it up to local officials to determine the size of the monthly payments, which generally range from $500 to $1,000 in existing programs around the country. Well, the vote came on the same day millions of parents began receiving their first monthly payments under a temporary expansion of the federal child tax credit, many view as a form of guaranteed income. And while it is set to expire in September, Democrats are talking about extending it permanently. Now, there is momentum. Things are moving quickly, says the advisor to Governor Gavin Newsom, who faces a recall election soon, uh, who was a trailblazer when it uh, was instituted, a guaranteed income program as uh, mayor of Stockton. The next stop, the federal government. Well, we'll see what actually happens there. But this is what's uh, going to happen in California. Meanwhile, the same governor, Gavin Newsom, uh, is going to pay the price for church restrictions during the uh, Lockdown of COVID-19, one year after Liberty Council filed the suit on behalf of Harvest Rock Church and Harvest International Ministry against California Governor Gavin Newsom, the full and final settlement of 13, uh, excuse me, $1,350,000 was paid today. Well, on the 17th of May of this year, the federal uh, district court approved the first statewide permanent injunction in the country against COVID restrictions on churches and places of worship. Well, under the statewide permanent injunction, all California churches may hold worship without discriminatory restrictions. California was ordered to pay $1,350,000 for attorney's fees and costs. Well, the money will be used by Liberty Council to continue litigation on behalf of other churches against COVID restrictions, including a case pending at the Supreme Court. A portion of the payment also will be used to pay off the mortgage of Liberty Council's Ministry Center in Washington, D.C., which hosts many Bible studies and various religious gatherings. Ironically, the payment from California, which had the worst COVID restrictions on churches and places of worship around the country, will be used to advance Bible studies and worship in the nation's capital. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break, and we'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Just a quick reminder coming up in the second hour, I'll share a conversation with John Ferguson. Blessed is the title of his book, Five Everyday Ways to Love Your Neighbor and Change the World. All in a day's work. Well, if a report that's been disseminated by a U.K. website called the Daily Exposé is accurate, the world may have a major scandal on its hands. A confidentiality agreement shows potential coronavirus vaccine candidates were transferred from Moderna to the University of North Carolina in 2019, 19 days prior to the emergence of the alleged COVID-19 causing virus in Wuhan, China, the website reports. 
Well, the expose produced the agreement itself, which can be viewed um, on their website. Page 105 is titled Material Transfer Agreement between the providers named as the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, National Institutes of Health, and Moderna TX, Inc. And the recipient is named as the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. The agreement states the uh, provider will give the university mRNA coronavirus vaccine candidates developed and jointly owned by the NIAD and Moderna, the National Institutes of Allergies and Infectious Diseases. Well, the agreement further states the research material may not be used on human subjects or used for commercial purposes such as screening, production, or sale, for which a commercialized license may be required. Well, the recipients who signed the agreement are Professor Ralph Barrick, Ph.D., and Jacqueline Key, Director of the Licensing and Innovation Support, OTC. The providers of the National Institutes of Allergies and Infectious Diseases investigator, Barney Graham, Ph.D., Technology Transfer Specialist, Amy So-and-so, and it goes on from there. Anyway, all of these signatures uh, were made prior to any knowledge of the alleged emergence of the novel coronavirus. The Daily Expose reminds us it wasn't until December 31st, 2019, that the World Health Organization became aware of an alleged cluster of viral pneumonia cases in Wuhan, China. But even at this point, uh, they had not determined that an alleged new coronavirus was to blame, instead stating the pneumonia was an unknown cause. Well, it gets even more curious than that. Science News published an article titled New SARS-like virus can jump directly from bats to humans. No treatment available. Noting that researchers from Chapel Hill discovered a new bat SARS-like virus that can jump directly from its bat hosts to humans without mutation. Well, the senior author of that paper, the same Dr. Ralph Bariak, who signed the transfer agreement, and the uh, same Dr. Bariak, who worked with Dr. Uh, Jingli, a.k.a. Bat Lady, at the Wuhan Institute of Virology on coronavirus gain-of-function research. Well, the year Science News published that article was 2015. Now, maybe those of us who are not uh, steeped in the scientific community might uh, might not fully understand what this means, but it is rather curious. Well, a timeline of the pandemic provided by the World Health Organization, or WHO, reveals that it requested information on the report cluster of atypical pneumonia cases in Wuhan from the Chinese authorities on the 1st of January. However, it took until January 9th before the World Health Organization revealed that Chinese authorities have determined that the outbreak is caused by a novel coronavirus. Well, thus, the question becomes obvious. Why was an mRNA vaccine developed by Moderna transferred to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill nearly a month earlier? Well, the 2018 article published by CNBC might provide a clue. It reveals that the Wall Street um, newcomer Moderna took a, a beating on its initial public offering, falling nearly 20 percent. Nonetheless, self-anointed stock guru Jim Cramer remained optimistic, saying it's uh, it's got an exciting uh, concept. You can argue that uh, messenger RNA based medicine could revolutionize healthcare. He asserted at that time. Again, we're talking 2018. Well, three years later, the company has generated one point nine four billion dollars in revenue during the first quarter. Its COVID-19 vaccine generated one point seven three billion of that revenue. And the company predicts the vaccine will generate $19.2 billion in revenue by year's end. 
12 months ago in Q1, first quarter 2020, Moderna had never run a phase three clinical study, never got a product authorized by a regular or uh, uh, by a regulator rather, and never made 100 million doses in a single quarter, boasted the company's CEO. I'm very proud of what the Moderna team has achieved. Well, Americans might um, be less enthused for more than a year. Anyone who even suggested COVID-19 originated anywhere other than nature was dismissed as a conspiracy theorist. Uh, While those same howls of derision were uh, aimed at anyone who dares to wonder why the developed uh, development rather of a vaccine for a virus preceded public knowledge of that virus. Well, still more curious, a cancer study published in November of 2019 revealed the presence of SARS-CoV-2 RBD-specific antibodies in 11.6% of its patients. Since antibodies uh, take time to develop, it's possible some patients had active infections as early as August of 2019. Well, that study shows an unexpected very early circulation of SARS-CoV-2 among asymptomatic individuals in Italy several months before the first patient was identified and clarifies the onset and spread of the coronavirus disease 2019 pandemic. It uh, stated in their report, finding SARS-CoV-2 antibodies in uh, asymptomatic people before the COVID-19 outbreak in Italy may reshape the history of pandemic, end quote. Well, unless history is obliterated by propaganda, it's no secret that an increasingly authoritarian administration and its media echo chamber are all on a all in rather um, getting every American vaccinated, whether they want to or not. It's also no secret that those who even dare to suggest there are viable alternatives to the vaccine, alternatives that would abrogate the emergency use authorization under which all vaccines are being administered are being dismissed as quacks and or um, demonized. Yet reality continues to intrude. According to the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System, as of the 7th of July this year, there have been a reported 438,440 adverse reactions to vaccines, including 9,048 deaths. And while the media remain determined to frame vaccine resistance in terms of enlightened blue states versus backward red states, The Kaiser Family Foundation reveals that as of the 8th of this month, the two cohorts with the lowest vaccination rates nationwide are African-Americans at 34 percent, Hispanics at 39 percent. By contrast, 47 percent of whites and 62 percent of Asians have been vaccinated. Well, at the very least, the above data elicit concerns and also reveal that millions of Americans remain highly skeptical of what they're being told. That skepticism will undoubtedly be amplified by the latest revelation that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine will have a new warning added, which, by the way, is not altogether uncommon with vaccinations for the Guillain-Barre syndrome, a malady that occurs when the immune system attacks the body's nerves. Yet that skepticism will pale by comparison to the disgust and anger Americans will feel uh, if it turns out the public was kept in the dark about the deadly virus until a large drug company could set itself up to make maximum profits. Now, at this point, um, it's not at all certain that that's the case, but this is what several reports seem to be indicating, and they are reliable institutions and individuals. Well, the Daily Expose wonders if the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Disease uh, would like to explain itself in a court of law. As for an American public subjected to more than a year of often dubious admonitions to follow the science, 
even when that science and the censorship it uh, engendered evolved 180 degrees away from its original proclamations, perhaps one of the the oldest and most uh, uh, cynical explanations of all is far more apropos. Follow the money? One might wonder. I'll leave that an open question. Well, the Texas Speaker of the House calls on the state Democrats uh, who fled to Washington to forfeit their pay. Well, the Texas House Speaker Dade Fellum on uh, Wednesday called on state Democratic lawmakers to give up their daily stipend of $221 as they hunker down in Washington, D.C. to avoid passing a voting reform bill. At least 51 of the state's 67 House Democrats boarded a private plane for the nation's capital on Monday in an effort to prevent a quorum and deny Republicans the ability to pass the voting bill. Another nine Democrat senators are believed to have joined the House members in D.C. And while these Texas Democrats collect taxpayer money as they ride on private jets to meet with Washington elite, those who remain in the chamber await their return to begin work on providing our retired teachers a 13th check, protecting our foster kids and providing taxpayer relief, Fellum said in a statement on Wednesday. Those who are intentionally denying quorum should return their pay, uh, their per diem, rather, to the state treasury immediately upon receipt. Well, Texas Democrats flew to D.C. to meet President Biden and encourage Congress to pass federal legislation barring increased voter regulation under the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. And while Texas House members have been unable to pass a voting reform bill under the special session called by the governor, Governor Greg Abbott, Senate Republicans passed their version titled Senate Bill 1 on Tuesday. In other related developments, the governor dubs Texas Dems filibustering in D.C. the height of hypocrisy. And liberals are fuming after DeSantis' website sells beer cozies saying, Don't Fauci, my Florida. And Randy Weingarten claims millions will die as DeSantis sells anti-Fauci merchandise. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, we'll hear a classic interview with John Ferguson, Blessed, Five Everyday Ways to Love Your Neighbor and Change the World. Well, Cuban President Miguel Daz Canel, uh, who days ago called on revolutionaries to counter anti-government protesters there in the streets, acknowledged Well, on Wednesday, the government shortcomings in the lead up to the unrest in the country, which is a pretty big deal to make that admission. Well, he um, has been widely criticized for the country's violent crackdown and Internet blackouts. He gave a televised address on Wednesday night and acknowledged that his government failures played a role in the protests over food shortages and other problems. We have to gain experience from the disturbances, he said, according to the Associated Press. We also have to carry out a critical analysis of our problems in order to act and overcome and avoid their repetition. Of course, what he's not addressing is the fundamental issue, economic freedom, uh, which is what many of his people are calling for. Historic protests broke out across Cuba on Sunday night, and uh, he uh, is the head of the Communist Party. He seemed uninterested in making any concessions. He placed the blame squarely on the U.S. for stoking resentment and called the protesters mercenaries. At one point, he said the order to um, fight has been given into the streets, revolutionaries. Well, Cuba is going through its worst economic crisis in decades, along with the resurgence of the coronavirus cases, as it suffers the consequences of U.S. sanctions imposed on the country. Some protesters have demanded a change in government. So 
although uh, Daz Connell uh, seemed to to tone down the rhetoric, it seemed uh, it remains rather to be seen if there will be any concessions by the government. And for those who have already been um, detained or killed or imprisoned, it's not clear what their future holds either. In other developments, James Craig blasted the Biden administration asking for a U.N. probe of U.S. racism. And Mayorkas is being accused of denying Cubans and Haitians U.S. entry because they'd vote against the Democrats. Meanwhile, Mitch McConnell condemned President Biden's fury over GOP voting reforms as utter nonsense. The Senate Majority Leader, rather the Senate Minority Leader, Mitch McConnell on Wednesday, condemned a fiery speech by the president as nonsense for alleged alleging uh, GOP voting reform laws were com- comparable to civil uh, the Civil War. This is our new president who promised to lower the temperature, bring America back together, and rebuild a civil society where we can dialogue as fellow citizens. McConnell was speaking from the Senate floor. We've won two world wars, faced down the Soviets, unwound brutal segregation, defeated actual Jim Crow laws, and endured the 9-11 attacks, he said, but now the sky is falling. McConnell's exasperation was over an address given by the president on Tuesday where he called on congressional Republicans to help stop the concerted effort by the GOP-led states to undermine the electoral process. We're facing the most significant test of our democracy since the Civil War, the president said at the time, in a rebuttal to GOP calls for voter reform. In other developments, Ted Cruz mocked Vice President Harris' ridiculous comparison of fleeing Texas um, Democrats to civil rights leaders, including one who was actually a Republican, uh, and suggesting that their chartered flight to Washington, D.C., where they're staying in luxury hotels, required the same level of sacrifice. A shocking video allegedly shows the accused Parkland school shooter attack a jail officer, and a California woman is the first to face federal charges over fake COVID immunization and vaccination cards. Britney Spears joins the uh, Free Britney Chorus after new representation in conservatorship is approved, um, and this could literally change everything. Well, the U.S. is urging 50,000 Chevy Bolt owners to park outside because of fire risks, and China's economic growth is slowing to a still robust 7.9%. Well, the giant's, um, uh, never say his name right, Barkley, will have his endorsement money converted to Bitcoin, Saquon Barkley. Uh, Two-thirds of Miami condo buildings are older than 30 years, and the repair bills are coming due, at, in uh, particular after the um, collapse of the building some weeks ago. And despite a lumber price plunge, high prices are here to stay, according to the experts. Well, Mr. Harsinies says, um, asks, rather, where is the outrage as... Um, The president has turned his back on Cubans, saying they will not be admitted into the United States. He writes, as far as I can tell, there was no uh, performative outrage from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or any of her progressive cohorts over the United States shutting its doors on the downtrodden. There are no um, outright analogies made between U.S. immigration policy and the MS St. Louis by Democrats. There is no grandstanding reading of the new Colossus from CNN hosts. Later, he writes, it's impossible to ignore the fact that Cubans are often treated differently. Perhaps it's because a sizable number of them having first or secondhand experience with socialism are critics and vote Republican and progressives are interested only in future Democrat voters. A stinging rebuke. You can read more on that in the National Review. Ben Shapiro says the new rule is that only refugees the Democrats presume will vote Republican will be turned away. 
Many others have noticed the disturbing trend as well. Meanwhile, Black Lives Matter issued a statement blaming all of Cuba's problems on the United States. Hmm. Mark Hemingway says, so how much of the American establishment last year uh, went to bat for an organization that is quite predictably defending an oppressive communist regime? Also, contra this obscene statement, the Cuban communist regime remains actively racist, uh, which baffles me how many African-American lawmakers embrace the Cuban government that is at its core and seeping from every pore racist. Katie Pavlich says in 1973, Asada Shakur was convicted of first-degree murder after killing New Jersey State Trooper Werner Forrester. She is a hero to Black Lives Matter. Cuba's communist government has been harboring her for decades, but that doesn't seem to matter in 21st century America. Well, Baltimore City schools are seeing a stunning 41% of students at or below a 1.0 GPA. That's 8,400 of the 20,500 students in the high school system. Few stories prove more powerful, uh, powerfully that parents need school choice and teachers' unions are holding kids back. Corey DeAngelis says children's education dollars shouldn't go to a monopolistic institution regardless of its performance or family's preferences. Families should be able to take their children's education dollars elsewhere, fund students, not systems. And African-American students are disproportionately disadvantaged by not having school choice. Two dozen Amazon workers uh, quit over the Schreier book, Irresistible or Irreversible Damage. Even the NBC News headline misled with the phrase anti-LGBTQ book because it is not. Schreier issues, um, Schreier's issue rather, is the way this is pushed on teens. Revealing how nutty this has become, the American Booksellers Association issued a bizarre apology for including the book in their July mailer. And Abigail Schreier, the author, says companies that can't stand up to censorous uh, employees betray their mission and public trust. George W. Bush is uh, criticizing the Afghanistan withdrawal, fearing for the safety of women in particular. Women are the collateral damage progressives regularly accept from the story as the withdrawal of the U.S. and NATO forces, which have been there for 20 years and need at some point to be withdrawn. Set in motion earlier this year by President Biden near completion, Taliban fighters have been taking control of large swaths of the country. It's unbelievable how that society changed from the brutality of the Taliban and all of a sudden, sadly, I'm afraid Afghan women and girls are going to suffer unspeakable harm, Bush told the publication. Uh, Franklin Graham added this on Twitter. It's dreadful to think that think of what will happen to the Afghan women and girls at the hands of the Taliban. There are Christians in the country as well, and this puts them at risk of being slaughtered. An exit strategy would have um, precluded some of what we're now seeing. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 52 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show, we'll hear from John Ferguson, author of Blessed, Five Everyday Ways to Love Your Neighbor and Change the World. Well, President Biden to the U.N. help investigate America's systematic racism. As Town Hall had previously covered, the United Nations and its Human Rights Council has a record of tolerating nations and leaders that deny their citizens human rights. Venezuela, China, Cuba, Saudi Arabia have all been legitimized by the U.N. as members uh, members of the body um, uh, supposedly focusing on human rights. Katie Pavlich points out on the announcement There are many countries that still have slavery and caste systems, but, you know, sure. 
The LAPD goes uh, softer on crime. No criminal charges for many crimes. What is a crime if you don't charge um, someone with one? Well, that's the answer, apparently. Get more crime. Well, anti-Asian rules in Boston schools is exposing progressive racism. Americans are awakening to the reality that for all their talk of uh, diversity and inclusion, progressives want to discriminate by race. If black and Latino children are not scoring high enough on competitive exams to get into the best public high schools, the progressives answer is isn't to lift achievement or improve K through 12 schools. The answer is to suppress merit and deny seats to Asian Americans in particular. The main result is more bitterness, resentment and racial division. Seems to me we can do better. Well, South Africa rioting has led to at least 72 deaths, all in the wake of the arrest of a former president. And trans in New Zealand are fighting a fierce battle against biological women when a pro-woman's group put up a billboard that simply said, woman, adult, human, female. The progressives there had it taken down and the battle is underway. Well, drug overdose deaths hit a record 93,000 this year. Keith Humphreys points out, a psychiatry professor at Stanford University, it's the biggest increase in overdose deaths in the history of the United States. It's the worst overdose crisis in the history of the United States, and we're not making progress. It's overwhelming. Well, in government and politics, the Supreme Court of the United States bound. Well, Fourth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals has ruled an 18-year-olds can buy handguns, upending federal law. We'll see where that goes. And more than 1.8 million Americans turned down jobs due to generous Biden um, unemployment handouts, I should say. And Biden inflation is here. Wholesale prices rose 7.3 percent in June from a year ago for a record surge. Defiant uh, Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell tells Congress to have faith, untenably predicting inflation will subside. Let's hope he's right. On this day in history, 1799, French soldiers in Egypt discover the Rosetta Stone, which proves instrumental in deciphering ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs. 1910, the term Alzheimer's disease is used to describe a progressive form of pre-senile dementia in the book Clinical Psychiatry by German psychiatrist Emil Krapelin, or something like that, uh, who credited the work of his colleague um, Elios Alzheimer's in identifying the condition. 1971, President Richard Nixon delivers a televised address in which he announced that he had accepted an invitation to visit the People's Republic of China. 2002, on this day in history, John Walker Lind, an American who fought alongside the Taliban in Afghanistan, pleads guilty in federal court in Alexandria, Virginia, to two felonies sparing his life, uh, rather sparing him life in prison. 2008, in an all-star game that begins at dusk and ends at 1.37 a.m. the next morning, the American League defeats the National League 4-3 in 15 innings at Yankee Stadium. People are still resting up after that one. And finally, on this day in history, 2010, after 85 days, BP stops the flow of oil from a blown-out well in the Gulf of Mexico using a 75-ton cap lowered onto the wellhead earlier in the week. Hmm. Well, some are predicting uh, between the end of 2019 and 2020, uh, 416,630 asylum seekers arrived in the European Union. That was 2019 to 2020. A large number to be sure, but hardly sensational compared to 2015, when 1.2 million asylum seekers arrived. 
That period, of course, was the so-called refugee crisis. Well, now Europe is facing a new refugee crisis as a result of the decision to pull U.S. forces out of Afghanistan without the strategy to prevent that from happening. Washington's, if it's possible to prevent that from happening, Washington, uh, Washington's international um, allies have no choice but to pull out too. Well, in to, together out, or rather in together out together, has been the mantra because the war was built around U.S. manpower and equipment. Although Biden claims to have ended the Afghan war, nobody, especially not Afghans, is fooled, and Washington's best friends are being left to pick up the pieces. Well, that task will affect ordinary Europeans who will face the political fallout of an inevitable new refugee crisis, and it could force European governments to send their troops back. Uh, We did not go to Afghanistan to nation build, and it's the right and the responsibility of the Afghan people alone to decide their future and how they want to run their country. That's true. That's a statement from the president on the 8th of July, announcing the U.S. military is on track to meet its target of completing and withdrawing by the 31st of August. United States allies didn't go to Afghanistan to nation build either. Indeed, it was unclear to many citizens of EU and NATO member states and partners why precisely their troops were being sent there in the beginning. But for nearly two decades, allies as different in size as Germany's and Estonia's Um, have loyally been providing troops uh, to a war that is called a multinational effort, but is really Washington's war. One year ago, for example, Germany provided 1,300 troops um, of Resolute Support Mission, 15,937 troops, making it Afghanistan's second largest troop provider after the United States. The United Kingdom was third with 950 troops, followed by Italy, With 895, virtually every U.S. ally has lost soldiers in this war. And that's not to overlook Afghans who lost lives in this war as well. Well, precisely because it has been the United States war, it was perhaps uh, unsurprising that the president could simply decide it was over. Now allied troops are pulling out alongside their U.S. colleagues. And on the 30th of June, the last um, Bundwischer troops to leave Afghanistan arrived in Germany. In his July 8th uh, statement, the president said he'd made the decision to end the war. He also promised that the United States will continue to provide civilian and humanitarian assistance, including speaking out for the rights of women and girls. But what matters uh, isn't whether Biden believes he's ended the war. It's whether Afghans feel he's done so themselves. Many seem to have made up their minds and their decision could have a major impact on U.S. allies in Europe. Afghans are already fleeing to neighboring countries. They include more than 1,000 Afghan soldiers who have escaped to Tajikistan, causing that country to mobilize uh, reservists to patrol the border. The brunt will be um, uh, felt in the neighboring countries of Pakistan, Iran, Tajikistan, noted uh, um, Stefano Stefanini, a former ambassador to Italy, uh, of Italy to NATO and former national security advisor to the Italian president. To some extent, the U.S. is sheltered by distance, though Washington is providing special visas to the many Afghans who translated, drove and worked for Americans, as we should. But many refugees at great cost and risk will try to get to Europe. It might not be the most direct route, but Italy via Libya will be the main landing point. Then the new flow from the Hindu Kush uh, will work its way north to Germany, Sweden, Norway and the U.K., so a refugee crisis may soon follow. We'll continue to follow that uh, that story. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, news and traffic up next. And then we'll hear from John Ferguson, author of Blessed, 
Five Everyday Ways to Love Your Neighbor and Change the World. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. So glad to have you with us. Well, if COVID-19 has taught us anything, it's that people and relationships are important. I think all of us have come to that conclusion. Well, during the months of isolation, thousands of Americans were left feeling anxious and depressed and lonely, showing us that God created us to be in community with each other. Well, to make matters worse, the 2020 U.S. presidential election left us more divided than ever before. But in this broken world, we need to intentionally, those of us who are followers of Christ, invest in each other and serve our neighbor as Christ did. Well, 2021 must be the year to love each other well. Well, my next guest and his co-author, who happens to be his brother, uh, John Ferguson, um, has written a book that will help us in that regard. Well, Dave and John Ferguson, uh, brothers, church thought leaders and authors, want friendship to be easy. As pastors of Community Christian Church in the Chicago area, they've seen the opportunity for their congregation to invest in others around them as they become more isolated in society. Well, the book is simply titled, Bless, Five Everyday Ways to Love Your Neighbor and Change the World. Well, John and Dave provide a step-by-step guide that encourages Christians to love others, to share the good news of the gospel, and change the world. And it all starts with one easy saying, and that is, Bless. Well, my guest is uh, John Ferguson. He is co-founding pastor of Community Christian Church in Chicago. He serves as one of its uh, lead teaching pastors and provides leadership and new ventures. He has also helped uh, co-launch New Thing and serves on the board of directors for Exponential Conference. He joins us to talk about the book he co-authored with his brother, Dave Ferguson. Thank you so much for joining us today. That's great to be with you. Thanks for the opportunity. I'm looking forward to it. This is such a timely book, given where we have been and where we're headed as we move away ever so slowly from uh, this pandemic that has forced us to isolate ourselves from one another. It's interesting to me as I walk through a grocery store, for example, that rather than look one another in the eye and smile, (laughs) uh, we tend to kind of move away from each other. We've been trained to, to be repelled by the presence of others. This book is so timely because it helps us to consider what we're called to do as Christians. And you draw our attention in the introduction to Mark 12, verses 30 and 31, in which we're told that loving our neighbor as ourselves uh, eight times throughout Scripture and by Jesus himself um, is such a significant part of what it means to reflect the character of Christ out into the culture. Uh, thanks so much, Georgine. I think you're, you're absolutely right, uh, particularly in these times when you know, we are more divided, we tend to be more separated, people are suspicious of one another for a variety of reasons. Uh, we need to follow exactly what you said, what Jesus said, that's love God and love others. It's the greatest commandment. He gave us two when we asked for one, but it's still all about loving God and loving others. And our hope is that this book really is almost a a remedial course on what it means to be a good friend. Uh, Jesus was known as a friend of sinners, right? Wouldn't that be great if we were known as simply good friends? And then over the course of time, that can give us the opportunity to share the gospel with somebody and help them find their way back to God and Jesus. Yeah, absolutely. I think some of us, we assume that, well, Jesus had an easier time of it, or maybe the sinners in his day weren't as challenging as they are in our day. <laughs> some, somehow we excuse ourselves um, because we don't know quite how to approach what our heart really longs for, and that is to develop relationships with people who don't yet know Christ, to share the best news we've ever heard and have benefited by, but we just don't know where to start. Bless really provides us with a blueprint and how to begin that and to reflect what Jesus reflected in his ministry on earth. 
Yeah, I mean, you're you're speaking my language for sure. It's interesting um, in in working on the book, Georgine George Barna, we discovered led a really interesting study, and George Barna probably knows more about church life in America than just about anybody else, where he did a study and asked friends and neighbors what they value mm. in a person with whom they would talk about spiritual matters to. So they basically talked to all of our friends out there that we would like to reach with the gospel. They wanted to find, they said this, they said they would like to see three qualities in someone that they would talk about spiritual matters to. Number one, they want someone who will listen without judgment. They want someone who will allow them to draw their own conclusions. And then they want someone who can speak confidently about their own story. That's all they want. You know, we think somehow it's our job to convince or coerce or cajole. It's our job to be friends, love people the way Jesus loved people. And then let's let God's spirit do the work of convicting and converting. Well, and I appreciate you make it very clear the role that you and I are called to play and the role that God through his Holy Spirit is called to play. We sometimes take on more responsibility than is given to us. And that makes a a frightening prospect out of just engaging in uh, friendship and community with people who don't yet know Christ. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't. Yeah, I think you're spot on. I, and Georgina, I don't know what your experience was growing up, but, you know, I and I think a lot of Christians probably feel this way, like this undue sort of kind of kind of pressure to do it a certain way. And mm-hmm. to, and, it, and it's all about a verbal witness. Now, I'm not saying that proclamation or verbal witness isn't important, but I think sometimes we get kind of the, the cart ahead of the horse, if you will. And if we will lay the groundwork, and I think these blessed practices do that, I think we'll find that we'll have an opportunity for a verbal witness and even a more powerful verbal witness than if we begin with the verbal witness. And that is so much of the example that we see Jesus set for us. And let's talk about the five blessed practices because it's blessed period, L period, E period. What are the blessed practices uh, that are everyday ways that you and I can share the love of Christ with our neighbor? And as you point out, change the world. Sure, Georgina, I can do that. I'll, I'll give you the five real quick. And then if you want, we can kind of dig in a little bit deeper on uh, one or two of them later yeah. on. But it begins with the letter B in bless, and it's begin with prayer. Now, I know that's a little bit of a stretch from an acronym standpoint, but it's begin with prayer. It gets better. Trust me. And keep <laughs> in mind, these are all things that Jesus did. So we didn't just make this up. OK, Jesus blessed people and he began with prayer. We see that over and over again in Scripture. Uh, the second one, then the L is for listen. And what we found is, and I think we all sort of intuitively know this, that, you know, listening is one of the most profound and meaningful gifts we can give someone to intentionally listen to them, their dreams, their hopes, their fears. So begin with prayer, listen. And then the third one is my favorite. It's eat. We share meals. You look at the life of Christ. He shared meals with people all the time. It was a great way for him to, to connect with others and, and let them know that he loved them. So we begin with prayer. We listen. We eat. The first S in blessed then is serve. I mean, Jesus said the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Right, to serve, right, yeah. So it's begin with prayer, listen, eat, serve. And then the final S in blessed then is story. And we're convinced that if we will take the time to, to pray for the people that we feel like God has put in our path, that we want to bless, that we want to share the gospel with, we will listen to them, we'll share meals with them, get to really know them, we'll then know how we can best serve them. And then finally, at some point, we'll probably have an opportunity to share our story and hear their story and then let the Holy Spirit do its work. And hopefully they'll come to know what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Mm. So what you're describing is a relationship that is built over time, not 15 minutes in which you have to spew out everything you know about the gospel and hope that they will fall to their knees and, <laughs> and repent. Wow. Georgine, if I didn't if I didn't know better, I, I, I 
you sound like you have experience in some of those other metrics. Because <laughs> <laughs> I know I do. And, and they didn't work that well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, too, your, as I mentioned earlier, your timing is impeccable. Given the fact that the uh, pandemic and the isolation that we've experienced, I think, has given us a longing to be together again. And what a tremendous opportunity we have to reintroduce ourselves, perhaps, to our neighbors uh, and to begin a relationship with people that we may have been in contact with for a long period of time. But we now have a good excuse to to build a relationship on these principles that will lead ultimately to sharing what's most important and and deeply valued with the people that we learn to care about. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're right on. Yep. I, and again, what's interesting is, and we could talk about this too, but what we found is some of these principles you could actually do during the pandemic, even though there mm-hmm. was social distancing and mask wearing, but certainly coming out of it, I think where you're right, um, more than anything, I think we're finding is that people are longing for connection, you know, content, We've always been able to get content, right? I mean, that's available anywhere on the internet, all sorts of places. But connection, okay, Zoom and Skype are great. However, true connection, uh, true friendships, the kind that bless one another are, are invaluable. And I think we do have an opportunity in this space and time coming out of the pandemic, like maybe we haven't in, in years or decades uh, to really, you know, could have kind of put our best foot forward and show the, the world what Jesus sort of looks like with, with skin on, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. And I mentioned to our listeners before our conversation that you have an appendix blessed during a pandemic. So there's some great um, ways that we can connect with people while we're on our way out of the pandemic. But we don't have to wait until things are completely clear. Now, we're going to take a quick break. I'm going to continue my conversation with a co-author of uh, this important book, John Ferguson, along with his uh, brother, Dave, Bless Five Everyday Ways to Love Your Neighbor and Change the World. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with John Ferguson, who has written a very timely book simply titled Bless Five Everyday Ways to Love Your Neighbor and Change the World. I thought it was rather interesting that the first chapter. Uh, in the book is, Why Does Sharing the Good News Feel So Bad? And you touched on this just a little bit with uh, some of the surveys that have been done to let us know what the the world outside of the church is thinking and is looking for from us. But let's address that. Why does sharing the good news feel so bad? Is it because our approach is flawed? Oh, it's a great question, Georgine. I, I think with the best of intentions at times, we'd have to admit that our approach um, was, is, or has been <laughs> Uh, somewhat flawed. And, and I think, again, it goes back to this idea that many of us grew up with and, and continue to um, is continuing to be perpetuated in some circles, I think, that, you know, it is up to us to coerce or convince or cajole people. And we kind of take the Holy Spirit out of it. And when in reality, I think what, what we need to do is learn to really, what does it look like to bless people, to love people, and then look for the opportunity then to to share a gospel witness with them. And, you know, when I was first trained in evangelism, you know, it was these two diagnostic questions. We'd knock on doors and we'd, we'd, Mm. you know, pummel people with these questions immediately. And I'm not saying at all that there wasn't some good done with that. There was some really good that came out of it, but I also think there was probably some harm. And I think it also left a lot of your average everyday Christ followers who really do want to help their neighbors and their loved ones get to know Jesus, understand the gospel. I think it kind of left them feeling like I'm never doing that. I can't possibly do that. I'm not going to do that. Whereas we can just kind of back up and say, okay, well, what did, what did Jesus do? He went about blessing the people in places that he came across every single day. 
And then if we give them some simple tools that really do reflect what Jesus did, I think we want people to walk away from this book saying, you know what? Maybe I, maybe I can help someone find their way back to God. Yeah, yeah. Well, I appreciate that the first um, blessed practice is to begin with prayer. I think that's so often left out. I'm pretty much on my own. I'm going to try to fashion this relationship in a way that works for me. We don't take the time to begin with prayer. And that's such an important element in blessing others as we're attempting to love them as we have been loved by Christ. Yes. And, and I think you're right, Georgine, in that oftentimes we, you know, we say pray first, but really it's almost like, well, that's like your last resort. Our focus here is, yeah, begin with prayer. Mm-hmm. You know, when Jesus started his earthly ministry uh, in Luke chapter 6, verse 12, it says he went out on a mountain and he prayed. Over and over again, we find Jesus retreating to pray. And so I like to tell people, if you're not sure who God is calling you to bless, like Jesus, begin with prayer. Uh, one, one way that I try to practice this is uh, in my journaling, and I try to you know spend some time daily in prayer and quiet reflection and journaling. At the bottom of my journal, I have the letters B-L-E-S-S on the journal. And then below that, I have a list of names of people that I feel like are in my circle of influence that God is asking me to bless. And so now I'm not going to say do it every day, but most days I'm looking at that list and I'm praying for those people by name, asking God to give me opportunities to bless them. And I think it's important to note that by doing that, you're already blessing them. Like that actually counts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so, uh, somebody challenged me one time with this thought. They said, you know, there are people that you come across every single day who have never not once in their lifetime had someone pray for them. And I don't mean, you know, stop them, you know, in the middle of the street, lay your hands on them and pray out loud. I just mean, you know, offer a simple word of prayer, even if they don't know that you're doing it. You know, I grew up in a Christian home. My mom and dad had been praying for me before I was born. And so we have an opportunity to really bless people, um, begin blessing them by simply praying for them. And I say, you know, if you don't know what to pray for, think of it like the golden rule of prayer. You know, pray for others as you would have them pray for you. Mm-hmm. A great way to start. So, yeah, begin begin with prayer. It's, it's, it's absolutely foundational. Uh, the second blessing uh, practice is to listen. And that sometimes can be hard for us because we're so anxious to share the good news because it's good news. We're not prepared to listen. And if we don't like what we're hearing, we may want to interrupt and interject or talk a bit about how we can bless others by simply listening and honoring them by listening. Yeah. You know, again, I go back to the life of Jesus. If you think about it and and, and read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, asking questions and then listening was central to his life and teaching. He asked way more questions than he answered. Uh, As a matter of fact, uh, one researcher found that of the 183 different questions Jesus was asked, he answered only a handful. Most of the time, what would he do? Respond with even more questions of his own, <laughs> sometimes even to a point of frustration for some people, I think. But uh, the truth is, listening may be the kindest and most loving gift you can give somebody. Uh, you know, I was even thinking about this, you know, during the pandemic, you know, as long as you kept your distance, you could still talk to people when you're out and about, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we underestimate the value of listening and just how desperate people are for a listening ear. I think we've all had those situations when you're talking to somebody and, you know, they are so dialed in. You, they, they make you feel like you're the only person in the room. What a gift that is. Because we've also been in those situations where you're talking to somebody and it's, it is so obvious they're either looking past you or they're already reciting in their mind what they're going to say 
next before you even get the words out of your mouth. Yeah. And just this whole idea of listening, it's so powerful and it, it paves a, uh, a great path for us, I think, to, to share the gospel. You know, I appreciate you reminding us that Jesus didn't answer every question. Sometimes we are fearful of being asked something we don't have the answer to because we think we have to carry the conversation. And what you've described is a genuine interest in other people that relieves us of the burden of having to uh, to carry, you know, the whole relationship and the whole conversation. So that is relieving in and of itself uh, and, and valuing other people. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, and again, I think if we could just... Uh, put ourselves in the, in the, in the shoes of the other person, we all love to be listened to. And so why not just offer that gift that you enjoy experiencing to somebody else? Absolutely. Again, the book we're talking about, Bless, Five Everyday Ways to Love Your Neighbor and Change the World. Dave and John Ferguson are the authors. The next on the list is Eat. Now, that might be somewhat intimidating to some of our listeners as well. If you're used to hospitality, inviting someone into the home, or um, you know how to manage that, uh, that may seem like, oh, a great thing to do. But for others, that can be a little bit intimidating because we feel like we have to have it all together. Talk a bit about how we love our neighbors well um, and, and how eating together, uh, can facilitate that. Absolutely. And again, you know, I, I go back to the life of Christ over and over again. We find Jesus, you know, with tax collectors, sinners doing what he's eating. And I think it's because he knew there's something special about sharing a meal that has a way of moving almost any relationship past acquaintance, uh, towards friendship faster than almost anything we can do. I mean, how, how many of us have had that experience where, you're you have an acquaintance and then either they invite you out to eat or over to your over to their home or you connect somewhere over a cup of coffee or dessert and suddenly someone who you just sort of felt like you sort of knew as an acquaintance now it's your your friends and i think it's just something that happens over a meal and it's it's not surprising when you think about how central meals were mm-hmm. to the life of jesus i mean the the one of the things that he left for us to, to, to repeatedly do over and over again, what, 2,000 plus years later is to share a meal, the Lord's Supper, the bread and the, and the cup, right? To remember his death and resurrection. So sharing a meal is a powerful way to, to bless the people around you. And, and something you touched on, Georgine, if I could real quick. Yeah. What I think is important about these blessed practices, particularly this one on eating, is we're really not asking people to add anything to your already busy schedule. I think most of us eat, I don't know what, three meals a day, seven days a week, about 21 meals a, a week. Some of us more, <laughs> some of us less. <laughs> Maybe throw in a dessert or two. Uh, what I would challenge people to, and we have tools in each one of the chapters of the book that kind of help you walk through this, is instead of eating those by yourself, just look for maybe two opportunities throughout the course of your week, two of those 21 to include somebody else. And don't you know, create this elaborate dinner you know, meal that you have to prepare go out to eat or just do something really simple, share a salad. It, it, it's really just about being together and sharing that meal rather than by yourself, you know, do it with somebody else. And it's a great way uh, to bless them. Yeah, it really is. It's so meaningful to be invited into someone's either home or circle to just share a meal. It's, it's such an intimate uh, opportunity to get to know one another a bit better. Now we're just about out of time in this segment. Can you give us a few more minutes if I take this break? Oh, sure. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. 
Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Again, we're talking with uh, John Ferguson. He's the co-author, along with his brother, Dave, both in ministry. The book is titled, Bless, Five Everyday Ways to Love Your Neighbor and Change the World. And I have to tell you, it is so practical. I could do this. I'll tell you more about that in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with John Ferguson. Uh, the title of the book that he and his uh, brother Dave have authored is Bless, Five Everyday Ways to Love Your Neighbor and Change the World. You know, during this period of pandemic, we've had a couple of new neighbors move into our neighborhood, and so much time has passed. I'm a little embarrassed that I haven't done what a, a good already in the neighborhood person should do, and especially a follower of Christ. I haven't gone over and introduced myself. I haven't brought a, you know, a cake or something. I haven't done any. This book has inspired me to say, you know, we're in a season right now where it's very comfortable to begin something that maybe should have begun months ago, but to begin something that could uh, develop into a, a wonderful relationship and friendship and an opportunity to extend the love of Christ and maybe even share the gospel. So this book is is very timely and very practical. We haven't really talked about the structure of it, but you'll find that it's very practical in, in answering the question, is this something I could do? And the answer is, and I can say with confidence having the book, yeah, any one of us can do this and make a real impact in our in our neighborhood and with our neighbors to love them well and to change the world. Um, now we were talking about the the um, practices, the uh, bless practices that allow us to do that. Let's talk about the next one, which is serve. Um, we have tremendous opportunities to bless one another in this season. How do you suggest that we serve our neighbors in an, our effort to love them well? Yeah, well, a good question. You know, I I think. Uh, the order of these, if I could just back up a little bit, yeah. is important. Too. So you begin with prayer, you listen, you eat, and then you serve. You know, Jesus said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. And I think he modeled for us, too, that if you will sort of follow these steps, that you will then discover how you can best serve the person or people that God is asking you to bless. Because, you know, praying, listening, and eating together helps you get to know that person. And it really ensures that the serving is about the person being served and not the person doing the serving. Mm -hmm. uh, it kind of reminds me of um, the love languages. Most of us are probably familiar with uh, Gary Chapman's book, where yes. the important thing is to learn um, the other person's love language and love them the way they need to be loved, when our tendency is to love people the way we want to be loved. <laughs> and I think it applies here. It's important to understand uh, you know, how your neighbor, how that person you're wanting to bless um, needs to be served and serve them in that way and not in a way that you necessarily want to. Uh, I, if I could, too, you know, you mentioned your neighbor. It's interesting. Um, an example where I, I think I might have got it right this one time. We had some new neighbors moving across the street. We live on the north side of Chicago. And my wife had mentioned that she uh, introduced herself to them and found out that the gentleman works for the Red Cross and that he's working super long hours uh, because he was a part of a team that came to Chicago to help increase the number of vaccinations that were available for the um, for the COVID, uh, you know, the pandemic. And uh, it's like the next day I was at the bakery and there's this bakery has this incredible bread that we love to buy. It's uh, uh, what kind of bread is sunflower seed bread. Strange, but very, very good. And so I, I go into the bakery and I'm looking at the shelf and I notice there's two loaves of bread and there's just something in me. And I'd like to think it was the spirit of God saying, you know, buy both loaves. You're going to give one of those to somebody. I didn't know who I was going to give it to at that moment. But I went in and bought both because I figured, hey, you know, <laughs> if I don't give it to somebody, we've got two loaves of really good bread. And uh, on my way home, though, I was praying about it and kind of asking God, well, you know, who should I? And 
that neighbor came to mind working at the Red Cross overtime hours. Why don't I just walk over there and say, you know what? My wife told me you're working a lot of hours. I just want to say thank you for your service, you know, helping out our city via the Red Cross with these vaccinations. I was at the bakery. I thought of you. I want you to have this loaf of bread. Hope you like it as much as I do. Not a big deal. Took me maybe, what, 10 minutes and an extra $5 for the loaf of bread. You know, I don't know where that's going to go. But I think it was a neat way to almost combine the eat and the serve. Yeah, <laughs> I was serving yeah. them by giving them um, something to eat. And, and, and that's how it works. Sometimes, you know, it's about the people that are on your list that you're asking God to help you know how to bless them. And sometimes it's just being sensitive to the promptings of the Holy Spirit for those moments when you have a chance to bless somebody impromptu. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. The last in the um, blessed practices is... Um, is a story where you have the opportunity to share your story. And I think sometimes there's such a sense of urgency. We want to kind of blurt it out <laughs> prematurely um, because it's, it's important to us. It's, uh, you know, our walk with Christ and experiencing and knowing his love has been such a tremendous blessing in our life. We want to share that with others. Uh, talk a bit about the, the, the fifth in the practice of story, when we share ours, how we go about it, the timing and all of that, and address that sense of urgency that we may have that sabotages our relationship that we're building. Right. I, I think that's a, that's a really great point you make there, that the urgency is good. That's what, that's what kind of drives us or prompts us to want to share the love of Jesus with our neighbors. Uh, but I think that, sadly, many people have felt like maybe they're being like sold. Uh, it's like a sales pitch rather than um, coming across as a, uh, a real genuine sort of authentic reflection of the life change that you've experienced and what you know they could experience in a relationship with Christ. And so that's why, again, I think it's important for us to begin with prayer. You know, listen, just listen and, and don't talk. Mm -hmm. Christians are so known for talking. We need to be known for listening. Mm -hmm. Eat, share meals, look for ways to serve. And then finally, when people are ready to listen, I think that's when we share the story. I think that's how Jesus did it, too. I mean, like when Doubting Thomas came to him asking, okay, Jesus, how can we know the way? And then Jesus said, well, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, a relationship with me. And so I think when you befriend and bless people, over time, they will feel relationally safe and want to know your story. Then you can tell them how the love of Jesus you know, his life, death, and resurrection, how that has changed your life. And even then, keep it simple. You know, just share with them. We have this in the book, three steps. Your life before you chose to follow Jesus. You know, what was it like? How you chose to follow him. What were the circumstances around that? And then finally, your life since following Jesus. What difference has it made? And I think in that third part, it's important to be honest, too. Share, share the good stuff and share the challenging stuff. The ways that, you know... God has really come through for you in, in remarkable, if not miraculous ways, but also share those places where you're still kind of struggling or working yeah. through it and trying to figure life out like most people. I think people really, really appreciate that authenticity. Yeah, absolutely. You don't seem like an opportunist. You never read in scripture where Jesus seemed like an opportunist. I'm going here. Uh, just I'm just waiting for my moment. And I'm going to you know, jump on. He was genuinely concerned and interested in people. He was genuine in his approach. And I think that first practice of beginning with prayer and the last practice, which is sharing your story, are so inexorably linked that if you're doing the first, then you're not going to blow the, the last because your timing is going to be guided um, not just by your sense of, OK, here's my moment. It's going to be guided by the Holy Spirit who says their heart is open. Um, and this is a moment for you to share just this much of your story. 
Oh yeah, I think you're right. And you know, it's um, it's interesting. I had when I moved to the north side of Chicago a number of years ago, I found out that a friend of mine from high school lived like two or three blocks away, and so um, we started getting together talking a little bit, started praying for him. I felt like I was trying to listen. We shared some meals. I found out the best way to serve him really was to simply listen to him because he was going through some really difficult times relationally, vocationally, et cetera. Uh, that's probably been over the course of about seven or eight years. And has he ever really, I mean, I've shared my story with him. So he knows you know, the difference that Jesus has made in my life. And just recently, he actually started going to an alpha small group with me, but he has Excellent. yet to really commit his life to Jesus. That's like seven or eight years. And, and you know what, that's where I'm saying, God, yeah, I want him to, but I think that's, you know, that's kind of where I got to let the Holy spirit take over and I'll do what I can and let God take it from there. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good. Now, where do we begin? I know as I'm sitting here, uh, I'm broadcasting from home today. I'm thinking about specific neighbors. Where do I begin in this effort to bless um, my neighbors and to love them well, as uh, the book suggests. How do I begin, first of all, by identifying who God is calling me to to reach out to? Well, I think it's exactly what you're saying there. I think there's a couple different ways. One would be to go ahead and think about those people that are in your circle of influence. And it, you know, in some situations for some people, it's, it's about proximity. It's about geography. Mm-hmm. It's those people that live next door to you across the street in your neighborhood. It could be, you know, especially as, you know, workplaces begin to move back to the office or on site, wherever that might be. It could be that person that you're sitting next to, you know, eight hours a day, five days a week that God has put in, in your path that you could begin to think about how to bless. And, and I would encourage you, like I know a lot of people have that are, you know, putting these practices into play is make that list. Make that a part of your regular um, journaling time and begin praying for, for those people. And then if you. If you have a circle of other Christ following friends, I think another great way to do this is make that a part of your conversation when you're getting together. If you're part of a a small group Bible study or discussion group of some kind, when you're together, ask each other, okay, who are you blessing this week? And if you show up and your way of blessing that week was by praying, well, good, that counts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Don't say I only prayed, say, no, I prayed. I prayed for, you know, two or three different people this week. And then I would also say, um, like I mentioned earlier, Make that kind of an ongoing prayer throughout the course of your day. God, help me to know who I can bless today and look for those sort of impromptu moments that you might not expect where God gives you a, an unexpected opportunity to bless somebody. Yeah, and he will certainly honor that. Well, there's so oh, much more that could be said about the uh, about the book. One of the things that you suggest is that when we uh, purpose in our hearts that we are going to to bless our neighbors and we've identified uh, who those people are, that we um, we are held accountable by others. We let other people know, a couple of friends uh, know that can help keep us accountable so that we, we do move forward and experience uh, the joy of blessing others as we extend uh, love and joy to them uh, through this commitment. Yeah, I, I think doing this in community is a great way to go. I mean, not to reinforce <laughs> the opportunities that we have in the book, but we do have resources available. If anybody wants access to that, like small group guides, mm-hmm. uh, videos that kind of help them train people in this, they can find that at bless-book.org. We'd be happy to help in any way we can. Excellent. Well, again, the title of the book is Bless. Uh, five Everyday Ways to Love Your Neighbor and Change the World. I know it's going to certainly influence my practice here in this area. Uh, John Ferguson, thank you so much for taking the time to, uh, to talk with us about it. Oh, completely my pleasure. Thanks so much for the opportunity. It was really fun. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, I came across a study that says regular Bible readers experienced more stress in 2020, but also more hope. I, f- I found that rather interesting, more stress. Now, why? Because we're putting it in um, to a um, an eternal grid. We're trying to interpret events in light of Scripture. Why more stress? Well, this is what the, um, let's see, this is Christian Post, I believe. No, it's Christianity Today published it uh, originally. And they began by talking about one woman in particular. She says, uh, Ainsley Moss is her name. She felt the full weight of 2020, as did many of us. For her, the year included uh, juggling the responsibilities of running several nonprofit thrift stores in York County, South Carolina, directing a women's shelter ministry, coordinating drop-offs for new mothers and seniors unable to leave their home in the pandemic, homes, and traveling back and forth to the hospital with her elderly father, who was fighting heart problems and esophageal cancer. Her father, he died at the end of the year on the 27th of December. Definitely one of the most challenging years I think I've ever been through, she says. I had my days that I had my um, good cries, but I think one of the things that kept me sane in those times was knowing that God has our days numbered. Well, at the worst moments in 2020, she said, she turned to Psalm 34, 1. I will bless the Lord at all times. Now, I don't think you or I could possibly do that if it were not for the Holy Spirit that gives us the capacity to uh, to act beyond what we're capable of. But I, I love that she went to Psalm 34, 1. I will bless the Lord at all times. Well, according to data from the State of the Bible Survey, which we're going to review at some point in the next week or so, it's by the American Bible Society. Her experience over the past year uh, was pretty much in line with many Christians in America. Now, maybe the details were different, but we were all under a significant amount of stress. Now, people who are Bible engaged, they point out, which the society defines as people who read Scripture multiple times per week and cite its impact in their daily lives as a key way they uh, relate to God, struggled in 2020. They reported stress and anxiety at slightly higher rates than the rest of the population, but they also had more hope. Jesus said, uh, in this world, you will have trouble, tribulation, trials, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Uh, John uh, Farquhar Plake, who's the lead researcher at ABS, uh, told Christianity Today, the American Bible Society, we see that played out in the lives of real people in the data. Now, some people have mistakenly thought that if I place my trust in Christ, then I can expect smooth sailing from here on out. But that's not what the scriptures teach, and it's certainly not what Jesus said. Well, the survey found that one quarter of Americans are experiencing moderate levels of stress, and and 10% are experiencing extremely high levels. Nearly half of respondents said that they had trouble sleeping. 44% reported feeling tense. 44% said that they were lonely and cut off from others. 37% said they felt numb or detached. And of course, we weren't uh, permitted in most cases to assemble ourselves together in fellowship and in church to encourage one another. Well, every measure of anxiety increased a bit between June 2020 and January of 2021 in this study. Christians who regularly turned to the scriptures were not immune. In fact, the opposite was true. We actually found that more scripture-engaged people experienced more stress and often higher levels of trauma. I'm very interested in the explanation for that, but we won't get into it 
at this at this point. Well, according to the study, a strong relationship to the Bible often coexists with and could even be compelled by the hardships of life. Well, Plague said the uh, correlation could be explained by the fact that people turn to the Bible uh, more when they're in trouble than when everything is uh, in their lives is going well. From what the data showed, the scripture gives people hope. Bible-engaged people scored 71 out of 100 on a hope agency a test, rating the truth of statements such as, if I were in trouble, I know I could get out, and I can think of many ways to reach my goals. I'm not sure, again, how that relates, but we'll go into greater detail when we speak with someone from the Bible Society on the next week or so. Bible disengaged respondents in the ABS study, the American Bible Society study, scored about 14 points lower. Well, Plex says the findings should encourage churches and ministries as they respond to the needs of people, such as uh, Moss, the woman we quoted earlier, who've been through a lot in the past 12 months. The study affirms the Bible is a source of hope and encouragement. Marlena Centena is a pastor and church partnership associate with the American Bible Society's Trauma Healing Institute. And Marlena says that women and minorities are statistically more likely to experience trauma in general, and perhaps even more in the difficulties of the pandemic. There are so many stresses that have happened in the past year on top of COVID. It compounded, she says. And while trauma can create a barrier for some people when it comes to forming a relationship with God, Uh, Centeno says that data indicates that people in times of pain and suffering are strengthened by reading the Bible. It doesn't change circumstances uh, immediately. It might change our perspective. It might remind us who's on the throne and ultimately what the outcome will be. Uh, But reading the Bible strengthens those who are suffering. She suspects the impact is even greater when the Bible is read in groups as relationships are also a source of comfort and encouragement, and maybe at least in part an explanation as to why believers were less um, encouraged because they were not in the company of fellow believers, which is the habit of those who attend church regularly. When people come together and form relationships and study the Bible together, they come away strengthened. Well, Centeno said that while she's seen a lot of hurt over the past year, she's also seen a lot of healing. I've done in-person groups. I've done online groups throughout this entire year with COVID. And it's amazing what happens from the first session of people coming in so incredibly heavy and having a lot of stress and a lot of pain. And then six weeks later or six sessions later, seeing some bring their pain to the cross and being able to see that light. Well, she said church leaders should take away two lessons from the State of the Bible report. First, people are hurting whether they show it or not. And second, the Bible offers hope. By the way, you can uh, download for free the first four chapters of the State of the Bible Report by the American Bible Society. You can go to their website for more details. She went on to say, um, it's or rather he went on to say, it's wild to realize that what was true 2,000 years ago is still true in the 21st century. Just as God changed people's lives, as it's recorded in the book of Acts and the Pauline Epistles, We see those same kinds of things in the data in the 21st century in America. The Bible is uh, not out of date. It's still relevant, and God is still at work. Well, we are out of time. I do want to acknowledge James Blend, our producer, and Clark Hilton, our engineer. Thank you both. And thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. 
Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.